This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. So there was a recent survey, 39,000 um, young people, Gen Z, and they were interviewed. And the things that they were worried about were racial equity, climate change, um, issues that affect their daily lives that they know to be real um, and that affect them and that are things that legislators can do something about. And instead, we have legislators passing laws to keep kids from reading certain books. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Hey, farm fam. Before we begin today's episode, I want to give you all an update on some things that maybe you've heard about in the community or maybe you haven't heard about, uh, about my like ties and my future in Tacoma. So let me start at the beginning. Back in 2018 in the summer, my wife and I were somewhere in between Bangkok or Kuala Lumpur in Southeast Asia, and we decided that we wanted to try something different and that we were going to go overseas and teach abroad. And so that year, we used our friends at Search Associates, and uh, we found a job here in Abu Dhabi, also found a job in Shanghai, and whole different alternate sliding doors future there about like, what would it be like to be in Shanghai during COVID, but different conversation. And so we moved to Abu Dhabi, and as you know, I've been podcasting here since 2019. When we first took this opportunity, the plan was, we'll go for two years. If we don't like it, we can come home. And I don't think that either of us would struggle to find teaching jobs back in the States or in Tacoma. But we like it. And in fact, I like it a lot. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of this overseas life that I have. Uh, one thing that's interesting about my life overseas, though, is, is that like I am still also like feet firmly planted in Tacoma. I am a homeowner in the city of Tacoma. I pay property tax in Tacoma. I have over a thousand former students from Lincoln High School and Meeker Middle School who are walking around in the city of Tacoma. I had one former student get hired at KNX as a reporter, and I've never felt older in my entire life. Uh, my mother's house is in Tacoma. My family has been in Tacoma since the 1960s. Uh, I've tuned in uh, via Zoom to black collective meetings, to city council meetings. Uh, I've hosted podcast episodes where we've talked about issues around the Manuel Ellis case and around the Ed Troyer case. Uh, I've tuned into city council meetings in particular, talking about the Home and Tacoma Initiative. Uh, I've hosted folks from Tacoma Housing Now about their efforts to end homelessness and to get housing for people who are experiencing homelessness. Like, I'm fully engaged in what's happening back home because home is home. But on the other hand, uh, as recently as like a month ago, I was on Doug's Off the Record conversation. And by the way, Off the Record is a member-only podcast for Channel 253. Uh, episodes are awesome, hosted by Doug. They're in 15 minutes. And at one point, Doug asked me about my future. And I said, I struggled to envision myself returning and living in Tacoma. That was a month ago. About three weeks ago, uh, Senator Jeannie Darneal announced that she was retiring. And that created a vacancy in the Washington State Senate. And some folks from back home, and I'm not going to name names because it's not about that, uh, but some folks from back home, including like elected officials, reached out to me about my interest in returning. And at first, I did like the Tecumseh, William Tecumseh Sherman, you know, response, uh, if nominated, I will not serve. If elected, I will not, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but then I had a kind of long conversation with a couple of friends, and they talked about why this was a unique opportunity that I was uh, well positioned to take, take and seize. A little bit about myself, like I am a political animal and like not and actually take the back. I'm not a political animal because politics is stupid. Honestly, I'm a civics animal and I believe like sincerely in the power of government to improve people's lives. The last black male in the Washington State Senate was Bill Smitherman, a man who I student taught with when I was in Jason Lee uh, back in 2004. And there has not been a black person representing the 27th since Rosa Franklin, uh, who I paged for in high school. In addition to that, like. Well, but complicating that, I guess, is I've never sought elected office and elected office never spoken to me. Uh, I remember vividly talking to Salong about this a while back on, on Mike, and I was just like, I could not and will not run for office because I run for office. I can't tell my truth. And for better or worse, like I like to tell my truth. And this is a forum on this podcast where I get to tell my truth. So 
long story short, I went from being not interested in this position to considering this position to actually seeking the appointment. And so if you're not aware of how the process works, uh, the appointment to the state senate seat is being done in a two-step process. First, there are precinct committee officers who are, like, there's 58 of them, although 51 after this incident happened, who are basically going to nominate three people who will go for the county council. And so with the blessing from my school, I began having kind of quiet conversations with the PCOs about why I thought I was the right person for the seat to represent the city. And what that would have meant was that I would have needed to return to Tacoma, like obviously, and to like run in November, which means I would have been breaking my school contract. And international school contracts are complicated. And frankly, Middle East contracts are complicated. And so Middle East international school contracts are complicated. But my school gave me a blessing to like chase my dreams or nightmares in some cases. Uh, and so I started pursuing it. But what happened was, was I didn't have peace about it. Like from the time I started the process, I did not get a single good night of sleep. And part of that has to do with like my anxiety about going back to the States. Uh, part of it has to do with my anxiety about politics and the nature of politics in the US. Like the last thing I want is my 81 year old mother turning the TV on and seeing some negative campaign ad from some dick faced Republican pack talking about how Nate Bowling had tickets go to collections in the early 2000s. You can't trust Nate Bowling like they did to Juana, which was totally messed up. And so uh, before my campaign really got off the ground, uh, I talked to my school administration and one of the conditions of me running was that Hope was going to need to return, uh, sorry, re remain here in the Gulf because like essentially like you cannot find AP teachers with our qualifications on the job market right now. And so I would have needed to have lived alone by myself without my wife who I love dearly for about seven months. I thought it over, Hope encouraged me to do it and in the end uh, I ended up pulling my name from consideration. So that has been going on. You may have heard that like I was in the race and out of the race, like I am out of the race. And uh, there's a bunch of great folks who are running. Uh, Priya has my support. They are a candidate who is uh, passionate about matters of justice. Uh, also, Yasmin Trudeau is an amazing candidate. She's a very dynamic person, uh, a, a, a leader in the community, has the support of a lot of folks who in the, in the community who I think are, are, are worth listening to. Uh, Anders Ibsen, like nobody outworks Anders. And I've made the mistake of not endorsing Anders a couple times. Uh, I I won't make that mistake again. Like if Anders is appointed, I know a lot of folks may not be excited about it, but like Anders will, Anders will represent the district really, really well. So that's what's going on with me. If you've heard about like Nate's running for the Senate or Nate's not running for the Senate, I was and now I'm not. And I think it's for the best. Like I'm not a politician, I'm a teacher. And I've never wanted to do anything else but teach. And I think that's why I found peace here in the Gulf because the work that I do is well supported, the work that I do here is sustainable, and the work that I do here gives me a work-life balance that like, I did not enjoy back in the States. And so that's what's up with me in the Senate seat. If you have questions uh, or you're really curious about it, uh, you can shoot me a DM or hit me up at nerdfarmpod at gmail.com. Uh, but enough of that, let's get to our conversation because today we're having a conversation that ties back to a lot of what I was talking about. We're talking about the pressures and frankly the war on American teachers by uh, actors on the right wing. And today's guest is one of my favorite commentators and you know what, no more superlatives, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher in gorgeous, sunny, 100-degree Abu Dhabi. Uh, our friends at PLU make sure possible, and so, Lutz, thank you for your support. Uh, my guest today is one of my favorite commentaries on issues about education. They are a former marketer, a former investment banker, a retired English teacher very recently, uh, and the author of the book, Schooled. And so, Anne Lutz-Fernandez, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nate. It's so good to be here talking to you again. It's good to see you again, too. So I feel like your previous book, Schooled, is apropos for this conversation. We're going to be talking about basically the right-wing war on knowledge and education in schools. And so talk about the book, Schooled, a bit. What were you trying to do with that book? Sure. Yeah, so Schooled, which came out in 2015, was a book that was prompted by um, a lot of the legislation that was going on across the country in terms of um, regulating and managing and uh, hiring, firing, recruiting, and training teachers. And um, in 2012, my own Connecticut governor um, made a comment um, when he was launching a, a new bill um, designed to um, work towards the Race to the Top initiative, um, and secure the kinds of funds that were um, being dangled there um, uh, as long as states uh, undertook certain so-called teacher accountability 
um, measures. And in introducing that bill, um, our then governor uh, mentioned that all teachers had to do to get tenure was to show up. And so that was the comment that <laughs> got me started thinking about writing the book School. And my sister, who's an anthropologist, and I had, had written a previous book together. So I asked her if she would help me out. Uh, because what I wanted to do was travel the country and meet teachers across a wide variety of settings. I've been teaching in uh, New England in a predominantly um, white um, middle school and high school um, in, in suburban Connecticut. Um, and I wanted to see what the experience of teachers was like in settings across the country. So we traveled um, fairly far and wide um, to meet teachers in uh, private schools, religious schools, public schools. We, we met a homeschooling parent and, and her children. Um, we went and saw uh, teachers in elementary, middle, high school, um, east, west, north, and south, and in very different settings, uh, rural, suburban, urban, and talked to them about the challenges that they were facing um, in the midst of what had then been a decade-plus education reform movement that was really limiting um, teachers' ability, um, in many cases, to teach well. And um, you know, some of the issues that they were facing then were um, a dramatic increase in standardized testing and scripted curriculum in some cases, and a whole bunch of um, accountability measures that were really um, making it hard for teachers to teach well. Um, and in fact, two of the nine teachers that we profiled left teaching within a year of our publishing the book. Um, and it was really disappointing because the teachers that we met were amazing, devoted, dedicated teachers who were doing great things in their classrooms. And so my uh, goal with that book and my goal um, in my rants on social media and <laughs> elsewhere um, is really to support teachers and to help uh, people understand the challenges that teachers are facing as they try to do their jobs well. Something you said there piqued my curiosity, if I may. Uh, so you profiled nine teachers, two of which left the profession. Uh, what did they shift into doing? Uh, one went into private counseling and one went into um, scientific research. Oh, so um, one continued to work with children, um, which had been her lifelong dream. She had always wanted to be a teacher four years in. Um, in part because of merit pay. Uh, she was a teacher in Arizona and a bunch of other pressures. She, she left, but continued to work with children. And the science teacher was an amazing woman who, um, you know, when I spoke to her, understood that she could get paid a lot more to do, um, to do uh, scientific research, um, to become a physician's assistant or to do any kinds of, of other um, work that her degrees prepared her for. Um, and so ultimately she made that uh, financial decision. South Carolina is where she was from. They're, they pay notoriously um, poorly to teachers. I have brought you on today to have a conversation about a what I'm going to call a right-wing war on historical knowledge and also a right-wing war on diversity and inclusion in schools. And so for the benefit of the audience, I will kind of want to situate ourselves in this conversation a bit. One of the reasons why I really enjoyed the writings of the author Sarah Kinzior during the Trump administration is, is that she seemed to be the only person who understood the stakes of what was going on and with the idea that democracy was being undermined intentionally by the Trump administration. And that what was happening with the Trump administration was a, uh, an echo or reflection of what had happened elsewhere with Hungary and in Russia. And so essentially she was the only national commentator who was framing what was happening as a rise of a potential authoritarian state. In the same way, I feel like on these matters of CRT and teacher censorship legislation, you are one of the only national commentators with your platform at NBC who has been talking about like the implications of these bills on teacher speech and framing these bills as part of a larger war on education. And if I can frame this a bit more, mm -hmm. we've been told for most of my adult life, at least going back to the 1990s, by commentators on the political right that there's a crisis in free speech and these campuses are out of control and political correctness is running amok and ooga booga booga, free speech is in danger. Free speech has not really been endangered because the First Amendment talks about restraining government, not restraining like individuals. 
But now we're seeing a situation where states are literally passing laws to limit what teachers can say, an actual threat to free speech. And I feel like you and me and like one other commentator, Nicole Hannah-Jones probably, uh, see it for the monster that it is. And so I, I guess I want to ask this question. If I say there's a war on knowledge being launched by the right wing in American politics, am I being an alarmist here? No. <laughs> I, I, I wish uh, I could say yes. But, you know, one of the pieces of evidence of that that struck me these last few years since Trump was elected was mm -hmm. um, simply how many politicians are willing to get on Twitter, for example, um, or on national television and proclaim ignorance about their own jobs. So often um, some of these right-wing politicians will pretend that they don't know what the law is around a certain issue and say some outrageous inflammatory thing that shows that they're pretending they don't know the law in question. And, and one of those issues is, is the First Amendment. Um, so, you know, when you have a lot of these um, Harvard trained lawyer politicians who are claiming that, you know, First Amendment rights are being squashed um, when, for example, um, students in a college somewhere um, aren't happy with a, a fellow classmates comment in a class and give that person a hard time. Um, that that is somehow uh, equivalent to a, a legal issue around the First Amendment. And mm -hmm. what we're seeing and what we've seen this summer and since, the, since last year with these divisive concepts laws are actual laws, actual government censorship. So as you pointed out, you know, these free speech warriors have been warning us about um, impingement on free speech. A lot of those people are both either quiet about uh, what's going on with this legislation or actively supporting it. Um, and to do that, you have to pretend to be ignorant if you are a, an elected official of how government works. You have to be, if you're a lawyer, ignorant of, of the constitution um, to pretend that um, things that aren't government censorship are government censorship. Um, and so I, I, I think part of the, the that goes to, you know, a lot of these politicians wanting to seem as though they're not elites, which mm -hmm. unfortunately I see a lot of journalists continuing to equate um, elite with progressives. Um, when we have plenty of elites uh, on the conservative side, graduates from all of these higher education institutions that they like to bash, um, who are in fact um, promoting non-knowledge, <laughs> promoting ignorance, promoting, um, on the one hand, um, those forces that are not knowledgeable as the voices of, on these issues, and then on the other hand, actually supporting um, these political moves um, that are um, frightening. And, um, you know, in terms of the threat to democracy, I, I feel like it's something that slowly dawned on me over the last couple of months. It's not like um, I had any prescience or, um, you know, I, I'd like to look back a year or two ago and, and say, oh yeah, I could see the convergence of, um, you know, education reform efforts um, and privatization reform efforts and um, growing authoritarianism. I did not, but I'm starting to see it now. That's interesting. So I, I could spend a month of Sundays talking about how big of a jackass Ted Cruz is and <laughs> also talking about how big the suckers in media are who allow Ted Cruz, who was a member of the Harvard debate team, to frame himself as a populist. Like I, I could spend a month of Sundays talking about that. But I want to zoom in on something you said that I mm -hmm. wanted to get to later on. Okay. We know that there was an education reform movement that was very active in like the, or, you know, like the, the early Obama administration race at the top. You talked about that in the intro. And we know that within that reform movement, there was kind of two elements. There's a school choice movement, which uh, has some many members of the school choice movement, movement uh, are advocates for programs and for options for black and brown families because public schools are failing their kids. Also within that movement, there's kind of a Trojan horse like school privatization initiative. Something that I'm working my way through understanding right now is, is how the neoliberal school privatization movement 
has basically ceased. Well, not ceased, but it has, has shifted in its rhetoric and shifted in its work and now is engaged in a right-wing culture war around white political grievance. And many of the figures who were advocates for the neoliberal privatization of schools are now advocates against like the boogeyman of CRT and are proponents of a constructive moral panic. A am I, do you read the situation the same way? Am I, am I reading this the right way? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of a handful of individuals who are, um, have, have platforms um, mm -hmm. who um, have um, joined up, for example, with um, some of these larger libertarian um, mm -hmm you know, free speech groups um, who are positioning themselves now, were positioning themselves as, as school choice and still do, still advocate for school choice, but uh, at the same time um, are working against what they think as, is, as you mentioned, a threat. So, um, you know, being anti-racist. Anti Oh, oh, there it is, by the way, my favorite <laughs> phrase, right? My favorite phrase. Okay, so just yeah. quick mathematics lesson here really fast. Yeah. If you are somebody whose policy platform and advocacy, uh, and you describe yourself as being anti-racist, anti that means one of two things. Either you are racist or you are pro-racist because two negatives cancel each other out. And so I thank you for bringing that to the table. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You, you mentioned that you see this as the convergence of the neoliberal like privatization movement plus the culture war plus rising authoritarianism. I want to kind of detangle those for a bit. Sure. When did this first start to feel like a crisis to you? Like what was the moment where you were like, wait a minute, there's a lot going on here? Uh, well, I, actually, let's do this differently. Let's take the CRT issue first. When did the CRT issue uh, and this idea that these are bills censoring teachers first come on your radar? Probably back in January or February, so mm -hmm. early this year, uh, early 2021. Um, and, and, you know, even before we had moved out of what I was worrying about at that time, which was all of the teacher bashing that was going on around school buildings being closed. Yeah. And so... I see all of these things as, you know, not necessarily coordinated um, uh, or conspiratorial, but certainly working toward setting the groundwork for what's happened today. So if you have, for example, decades of teachers being bashed because, wow, there's all these bad teachers in the schools, we need to get rid of them, we need this legislation so that we can test them and we can hold them accountable for student test scores and we can get rid of all those bad apples, right? So for, for, for years, it was union bashing, you know, tenure bashing, there's, there's bad teachers in the schools. So you've got, you know, for, for more than a decade, um, those folks knocking with hammers and mallets at the foundation of, of parents' trust in schools and teachers, right? And then the pandemic comes. Well, actually, wait a minute. Before the pandemic, we get Betsy DeVos. <laughs> right. So, you know I what? Said, Honestly, no, DeVos is a huge figure in this. And I yes. feel like we're all like, we're all so good riddance to Betsy DeVos that we actually don't have our heads wrapped around the impact she had on education in the country. So please keep Absolutely. going. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me back up. So in between all of those efforts, we have the culmination of those efforts in Trump being elected and Betsy DeVos being, you know, most teachers uh, worst nightmare for a department of ed head. Um, somebody who um, knows very little, again, you know, ignorance of the, the system in which she was put in charge. So um, right there, you have a, a highly symbolic um, argument for um, this being a um, campaign against knowledge. Um, and then we have all of her efforts while she was in office. Um, and, and although some of those were clipped and she had less power as the federal head of the education department than um, she might have liked and that other people who supported her would have liked, um, and the fact that she's gone, she did move forward um, a lot of school choice um, uh, programs across the country. And so you've got that. Um, and then you've got, and, and, and whatever motivational value comes out of from the school choice movement of people seeing her in that position, which is, uh -huh. can't be understated. Again, her bashing teachers constantly. Um, so we've got the highest you know, education official in the land 
um, you know, again, working to, to undermine trust in America's teachers. Then we get the pandemic, right? And we saw Trump very early um, that summer of 2020 working to provide a handy villain in teachers um, before schools reopened and before um, we had any idea what the fall was gonna look like, um, working to create um, a villain out of public school teachers who didn't wanna go back into buildings and risk their lives, their families' lives, their communities' lives, and their students' lives. So a lot of the energy that was behind school reform movement then moved into, you know, reopen schools, reopen schools, reopen schools. And again, bashing the teachers, bashing the unions, a lot of distrust being created around that. And then if you go back further than I was paying attention to last fall, so fall of 2020, <laughs> you start to see the Federalist Society and some of these other groups working to create the CRT boogeyman that we see today um, being invoked at school board meetings all across the country. Yeah. So and it is a process of, of confluence of things that have, have now, um, I think, created a crisis of um, democracy in, in, in localities, are, and, it's, and it's focused on schools. Yeah. And, and before somebody listening gets their Twitter fingers ready, let me be really clear here. I have chosen to stay the hell out of school choice fights because, like, I ain't got time for it. Uh, I'm an agnostic on school choice, and I'm fully aware that, like, it would be obscene for me working in a private international school to say that school choice, blah, 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 blah. And so, like, just save your tweets for somebody else. Um, <laughs> well, they can save it for me, too, because although um, I'm a skeptic of school choice and I, I have um, um, spoken out against certain um, – choice programs and philosophies. Um, one of the things I wanted to do with schooled was to meet teachers who were teaching in charter schools, in mm -hmm. private schools, and again, a homeschooling parent, because one of the things I saw happening back when I wrote the book was teachers being pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. So if you were a charter school teacher, you were supposed to not support public school teachers. If you were a public school teacher, you were supposed to denigrate the charter school teachers. And I, I really thought that was problematic. And I, and I celebrate teachers who are doing great things wherever they are. Um, and so I, I may be um, a critic of, of certain school choice, um, again, programs and philosophies and personalities, but um, I think great work is being done in lots of places, lots of types of schools. There's a phrase that you used that I think we kind of both can tap dance past, but I want to, I want to kind of marinate in it a bit, use the phrase war on democracy. We're seeing a situation in which school board members and school administrators are having their lives threatened, uh, armed mobs of people who oftentimes don't have children in schools are showing up intentionally to disrupt meetings. And it's incredibly chilling to discourse. And I, I, I think that one of the ways that we let ourselves down is not putting events in concert. And so we had January 6th happened and we showed that like angry white right wingers will storm the U.S. Capitol and try to hang vice presidents. And those same angry white right wingers will also show up to school board meetings and make death threats to school board officials who, by the way, in most locations don't get paid for their work. It's a volunteer effort. Yeah. And so – when you say war on democracy, I just want to point out to folks listening, that's not alarmist language. What we're seeing is a war on local government and governance Absolutely. by the folks who are supposed to be from the party of small government, which is the whole ironic thing to it. It does sound hyperbolic, and I thought a lot about it. Um, mm -hmm. But when I wrote a piece about a month ago um, on the heels of some of the um, violent protests um, at school board meetings, one of the things that struck me was, you know, what you're saying in terms of disruption, right? So there is there is no better model for local government than a school board meeting. People are invited to come and speak. Um, people get a chance to speak. Not everybody gets a chance to speak every meeting, you know, about what they want when they want. Um, but it's it is a highly organized uh, um, process by which. Democratically elected officials, as you mentioned, often not paid, in con working in concert with other government officials, state and, and local um, education officials, working with, with principals, administrators, teachers, parents, and students, all have a voice 
on the issues of the day. And, you know, 10 years ago, it might be something nice and, and, and safe, um, like putting lights on football field, right? Sure. Let's have a debate about that. You know, there's going to be neighbors that show up that don't want their, you know, the lights and the noise on Friday night. Um, and then you're going to have the voices that want to argue for it. Um, so from the most mundane, um, you know, agenda items to the hottest agenda items. And so lately those have been things like mass mandates and we will soon have them around vaccination mandates, um, around CRT and this invented, um, boogeyman, um, that process, disrupting that process is very similar to, as you mentioned, what we saw on January 6th. Obviously, you know, the scale is dramatically different. Um, people's intentions may be dramatically different, but some of the images um, and I think some of the effect um, is the same. If you see images of, as you mentioned, white people, particularly a lot of disproportionately male, um, banging on the doors of the Capitol and fast forward, not six months later to them doing that on a school building or a um, board of education, you know, a town hall trying to get into a meeting um, that they're being blocked from because there's too many of them and they're too rowdy and too disruptive and they have to shut down the meeting. You can't ignore the parallels between those images and events. Yeah. All right. We'll take a break here. And when we come back, uh, I want to walk through some of the events that have been uh, brought to my attention by your writing. Because one thing that I appreciate about you is, is that you're not, you don't treat this as, oh, disparate event, disparate event, disparate event. You're drawing a constellation for the public of what's really going on. And so I want to talk about that in the second half. Thank you. We'll be back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 show Nerd Farmer. And this episode is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. If we've learned anything from the last two years, it's that the future is unpredictable, which is why education and higher education in particular should equip students with the ability to be flexible and innovate. Students should leave college with the determination needed to understand a problem and explore solutions. And they need a spark of creativity so they can find new ways to turn their smart ideas into reality. But these traits and skills can only be set into motion by one thing, transformative care. Pacific Lutheran University is a small private college where caring means more than kindness and consideration. It means bold commitment to expanding well-being, opportunities, and justice. And just let me add an amen to that. Caring helps us all to question paradigms and draw new connections in pursuit of truth, constantly challenging ourselves and the world we love to be better for our neighbors, those down the street and thousands of miles away. PLU is more than a campus full of individuals pursuing their dreams. It's a community of seekers, trailblazers, creators, and reformers who know we can accomplish more together than apart. To apply, schedule a campus visit, or learn more about PLU's undergrad and graduate programs, please visit plu.edu. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading and listening to the show today. The Nerd Farmer podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We are a network of shows grounded in the city of Tacoma, telling stories and elevating voices from elsewhere. I am proud of the work that we do here, and I'm a member of the network. I pay my $4 a month. And in fact, I should have paid $40 a year to save some money, but different conversation. What I'm saying here is, is that media that is worth listening to is worth paying for and helping to support. And like, obviously podcasts are free, but if you believe in this work and you believe in the conversations and you've found utility in the conversations that IWL is having, and you found utility in the conversations that Crossing Division has hosted about redistricting, for example, uh, think about supporting the network. It's $4 a month or $40 a year. And if you join as a member, you get access to our member-only Slack, which according to one malcontent in Tacoma, has a disproportionate influence on politics in Tacoma and needs to be reined in. <laughs> All shade intended, no names, because you don't get... So he ain't important enough to get named on my show, but like, ah. So anyway, if you want to support the work that we do, channel253.com slash membership. Again, it's $4 a month or $40 a year. Yo, that's like cheaper than an IPA or a hot dog at the Red Hot. Come through. All right. And let's get back to it. 
I was mentioning before we went to break about how I love that you're putting things that are happening like in concert. Uh, can you talk through what you found in your research about the various CRT laws? And actually, no, I don't want to call them that. The various teacher censorship or discourse censorship laws that have been passed around the United States. Like, what have you seen uh, happen in legislatures around the country? Well, we've seen dozens and dozens of, of laws being proposed and passed. Um, we've seen some of them include, um, you know, really punitive consequences for teachers who violate these new, new laws. Um, we've seen a lot of vagueness in the language. Mm -hmm. um, so you put those two things together um, where a teacher doesn't quite know what's going to get them in trouble, but it's going to get them in a lot of trouble or their school in a lot of financial trouble. Um, you know, that is remarkably chilling. And we've seen already um, some of the um, fallout of it. We've seen some of the effects um, on uh, teachers or teacher last week being reprimanded um, for a book that was available um, in her classroom library. We're seeing teachers being um, instructed to take books off of shelves in their classroom libraries um, based on a rubric that is designed to help them avoid getting in trouble with the, uh, these laws allegedly. So we're seeing book banning happen already um, as a result of these laws. And, and I'm, I was an English teacher. I know you're a history teacher. So um, I have a particular focus on what's happening in terms of um, you know, some of the, the reading that students are doing um, in, in history, but, but, but mostly in English. Um, more so than I've been focusing on what's happening, for example, in history and social studies classrooms around the curriculum that they teach. Um, so I have a slightly different focus there. Um, but in this past week, a week following Banned Books Week, um, we've seen some pretty frightening developments that have flowed out of these laws already. So um, they're on the books in a lot of places. They're already having an impact. Um, we, we won't even know what the full impact is. Um, we're going to hear a story, you know, an anecdote here, an anecdote there, and another one there. Um, but we're not going to hear about what a lot of teachers are no longer doing. Right. Oh man, I want to talk at so many things there. Okay, so you, you mentioned that various states are passing very like stiff penalties. Any examples uh, off the top of your head? Well, um, in some cases, some of these laws have proposed financial penalties for teachers mm -hmm. directly. Um, some of them have proposed um, that funding be pulled from schools and districts if um, teachers uh, violate the laws. Um, there are a whole range of other disciplinary actions that can be taken. Um, and then there are all the kinds of things that we know teachers are subjected to normally in, in normal times in terms of not being given certain opportunities um, within their schools, not having the, the ability, for example, to go into administration, um, the ability to teach certain classes. Um, there's a lot of ways to um, punish teachers that are not necessarily visible um, and formal, um, but there are lots of ways that um, teachers can be discouraged from um, doing, uh, doing things or, or encouraged to not do things like not teach certain subjects, to not teach certain books, to not provide certain books in their classroom. Well, and I think it's worth dwelling on the book banning thing a bit because this is not like, oh, this book has inappropriate material for children of a sexual manner. Because like, you know, there's, there's precedent on that. This is the content of this book does not meet the, frankly, arbitrary political litmus test being contrived by local boards and being demanded by certain parents. Uh, you mentioned Texas. Can you talk about the story of the book that was banned and like how that process was undertaken? Well, there's, there was a teacher who um, a student came home with a book from a, from a teacher. Um, it was not a required reading book um, mm -hmm. for the whole class. Um, a parent became upset um, by the very cover of the book. <laughs> um, and um, the teacher at the, the latest Board of Education meeting um, was given a reprimand. Um, and that book will no longer be made available in that school. Um, 
Now it's one parent that's able to take one book out of one school, but <laughs> you can use a, an easy multiplier to see how very quickly that leads to empty bookshelves. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, we have a long history of parents and educators negotiating, you know, what books are appropriate for certain age groups. Um, you know, uh, should this be in the middle school library? Um, okay, but it probably shouldn't be a book that all students are required to teach. Um, you know, th there's ways to negotiate between parents and teachers around concerns about age appropriateness. Um, and we've negotiated those for, for decades and, and sometimes, you know, not always politely, um, but without uh, the interference of legal entities. Well, so, and there's a, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so that my latest piece for NBC, um, you know, I wrote a, a bit about, um, you know, the, the, the focus of, of these books. And, and as you point out, it's, it's quite political. So um, the American Library Association keeps track of challenges um, to books that are in libraries and, and schools. And while in the past those might have been filled with, um, you know, books that were deemed um, inappropriate, uh, again, because of sexual content or um, something like that, um, the last couple of years the, the lists have been filled with um, books that have to do really with identity issues, gender identity, um, sexual identity, um, maybe not even um, directly on those issues, but including characters who were um, LGBTQ plus, um, or um, most recently since the murder of George Floyd and the, and the, and the protests that followed that, uh, the list last year um, included all of a sudden um, books that were problematic because they um, allegedly um, encouraged um, disrespect for the police. So what we're seeing on the list is each year tracks fairly readily with whatever right-wing media certain personalities are promoting as the problem of the day. So is it transgender bathrooms? Well, let's get those transgender books out of the schools. Is it BLM? Well, let's get those books out of the school that seem to uh, focus on uh, issues of police violence and racial equity, um, because that's BLM or CRT. Um, and I'm doing air quotes that nobody can see. <laughs> Hopefully you can hear them in my voice. Um, so uh, it, it is uh, frustrating to me to see these books being pulled from shelves and challenges and teachers being encouraged to um, not introduce students to certain literature um, by the argument that this is about protecting children. Because if we were really worried about protecting children, there's other things we could worry about. And so when I think about the lawmakers in particular, lawmakers actually can protect children from the two, do things to protect children from the two things that are most dangerous to them guns and cars. They can work on gun control. They can work to reduce traffic and um, inter introduce traffic coming to streets. There are things that they can do that actually protect children. That's their job, right? Public safety. Um, there are existential threats to the planet. Legislators can work on climate change. And actually, that's what kids are worried about. So there was a recent survey, 39,000 um, young people, Gen Z, and they were interviewed. And the things that they were worried about were racial equity, climate change, um, issues that affect their daily lives that they know to be real um, and that affect them and that are things that legislators can do something about. And instead we have legislators passing laws to keep kids from reading certain books. And if I may, a compounding factor that I find enraging about this, and so the book in question, by the way, is this book is anti-racist by Tiffany Jewell. If Tiffany Jewell, sorry, if the teacher in question is anything like me, and this book is in their classroom library, the money for this book came out of their pockets. Mm -hmm. Teachers tend to not get money handed to them by the government to fund and create classroom libraries. And so 
this book, as you mentioned, was not assigned to the student. It was purchased by the teacher and put into the classroom with their own money. And then the school district is censoring them, or sorry, censoring them because, well, actually doing both, but whatever. They're censoring them because a parent does not agree with the political content of a book. This is dangerous territory. Like, like I, the, the unstated thing that I want to just put on the table is, is that we're essentially litigating in our schools the plot of the book Footloose or the movie Footloose. And what is happening is, is that like legislatures are siding with the parents from Footloose. Like I, I, I can't believe we're going through this and trying to shove this whitewashed version of American history, this like shitty Norman Rockwell of American triumphalism uh, down, the kid, down the throats of kids in classrooms. And that like folks are going along with it. I, I, I'm, I'm struck by it. And in fact, if I may, and Somebody listening to this is probably going to roll their eyes at this part. But like I tend to make distinctions within the conservative movement between your I'm a small business conservative. I'm an anti-tax conservative. Like I'm an establishment country club conservative. And then like the conservative culture warriors. But what we're seeing is because of negative partisanship and frankly because of like stoked fears on the political rights about like the decline of whiteness, the decline of white society. We're seeing the normie country club conservatives at least be silent on these issues and then ceding the ground to the culture warriors. And there's lots of folks who know better on the political right and lots of folks who know better in the Republican Party and lots of folks that know better in state legislatures who like are choosing to not speak up and letting the Christopher Rufos and all the moral panickers and by the way, let's just moral panicking, cashing in grifter hucksters uh, make their bread off this moral panic. There's not a question there. I just had to get on my soapbox for a second. <laughs> now I'll step off and get to the actual question. I, I wonder to you, where does this go next? Like we have a situation where we're redefining what curriculum and instruction means. We have a situation where we're removing conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion from classrooms. We're having book bannings happening. Like where's, what's, the, what's the near future end game of this for you? If I'm being hopeful, I'm, I'm seeing some of those parents that you just talked about, some of those um, conservative, conservative parents, but who are not culture warriors, plus more parents all along the moderate to liberal spectrum getting more involved in this battle so that it is not just educators having to battle the parents who want the books removed. And we are seeing some of that, um, you know, at, at some of the Board of Education meetings. Um, I, I've seen pushback um, in my area um, from, from parents across the spectrum to some of the more extreme um, uh, suggestions and protests that are going on. Uh, but I think we need to see more of that. Um, we need to, to activate more parents who, who are concerned that schools are being turned into um, places that are either devoid of political contact, right? There, there are, there are um, parents who would prefer that schools be little bubbles shielded from the world in which their, their children learn math and grammar rules and <laughs> not much else, <laughs> right? So you have that, that, um, plank. Um, and then you have um, parents who have been riled up by um, certain media personalities um, and who I believe genuinely see a threat. They, they believe there's a threat. They've been convinced there's a threat. And we need teacher, teachers and parents and, and, and citizens who are their friends and neighbors and, and fellow citizens to help them see the danger in where this is headed or where it could be headed, which is the, the politic, I mean, we've seen the politicization of the science curriculum now for decades. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing the politicization of the history, social studies and English um, curriculum. Um, and there's not much left after that. I mean, phys ed, <laughs> music. <laughs> you can only play baseball and throw right-handed, no left-handed allowed. So I, I, I do think um, educating more citizens on the potential threat of these laws and 
how they might play out is important. I, I think a lot of people don't realize what's going on. Um, they're not paying attention to the education news as, as much as, as educators are. Um, and so they're not necessarily seeing all of the stories that we're seeing um, that enable us to, 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 to see a trend or to, to connect some dots. Um, and who may have some legitimate concerns about what their children are learning in school um, and, and get them into more serious conversation. I think I want to leave it there. Uh, the one thing I'll add, though, is, is that it is apparent to me how female dominant the teaching profession is. And there's nothing that certain politicians like doing more is than telling smart women to shut up and get in their place. And a big part of this is silencing women. And also it's apparent to me that the two uh, teacher unions in the U.S. are some of the biggest donors and backers of the Democratic Party. And that this war on teaching is also a campaign to silence them. But that's a conversation for a different day. Uh, and thank you so much for making time today. If people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Um, really Twitter exclusively now. So I'm at Lutz Fernandez on Twitter and I'm there too often. Okay. Uh, do you have a muckraker or a place where your MSNBC or NBC stories are all archived? I don't, um, but I have a website for schooled. So you could go to schooledbook.org and find all of my recent articles. Again, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate talking to you about this, and I look forward to seeing you online. And uh, one day I'll thank make you. it to the East Coast, and let, let's hang out. I would love to do that. I, I'd love to come back anytime. It's so great all to right. talk to you. Thank you for the, all the work you're doing. Thank you. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your hands. Uh, if you're in an indoor space, wear a mask. If you're not vaccinated, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, get over it. Take the jab. And lastly, convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Do you go by Ann Fernandez or Ann Lutz Fernandez? Or I go by Ann Lutz Fernandez because I was okay, Lutz, Lutz until I was 40. So, okay. But then I became a teacher, and as you can imagine, you don't want to be Miss Lutz. You want, I'm sorry, I had to say it. Yeah. I thought I would never take my husband's name. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.